Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, welcoming you to Café Terence in Paris's troisième arrondissement. Anyway, my, my, my guest today uh, is uh, Stephen Ujifuza. Uh, welcome to Paris. Welcome to the program. And, and the book is The Last Ships from Hamburg, Business, Rivalry, and the Race to Save Russia's Jews on the Eve of World War I. Stephen, the, the first obvious question before we get serious is how, do, how does a guy with a name like Ujifuza become attracted to this subject? That's a very good question. Well, I have a Japanese-American father. And I have a Jewish mother who's descended from uh, people who came over from Belarus uh, around 1890. And as you say in the very beginning, I may mean, think in the first, maybe the first uh, sentence in the book, between 1881 and 1914, 10 million people crossed the Atlantic from Europe, two and a half million of whom were Jews, which included my grandparents, uh, Max and Dara Gottlieb, or my great grandparents, excuse me, let's go back a little, I'm not that old. And uh, Sophie Weinstein Bacall, whose daughter went on to become Lauren Bacall. Uh, this mass, you know, I, I think when I first heard about, about this when I was a child, I imagined a bunch of people got together, packed their belongings, and just started walking towards Germany to get onto a boat. But obviously there was a, uh, uh, I don't want to call it a rat line, but there was certainly a, a way for this to happen. And there were three people who were primarily responsible, uh, Jacob Schiff, uh, Albert Ballin, and uh, kind of <laughs> uncharacteristically J.P. Morgan. Uh, talk about those three people. Let's set up who they were, what they were doing, and how they got involved in this project. Well, Albert Ballin is the central character of the Lashups from Hamburg. And without him, uh, the two and a half million Jews who got out of the Russian Empire, and many other people, non-Jews as well, who came to America from Poland, from Austria-Hungary, um, and other parts of that of that part of Europe would not have made it. It was Albert Ballin, who was born in 1857, who was uh, responsible for organizing this network. He became managing director of the Hamburg America Line. He was born to a poor Jewish family in Hamburg, and uh, at age 17, went to work in his late father's immigration agency. And it was a failing business. His business basically bought tickets in bulk from the Hamburg America Line and other big carriers and sold them to waiting immigrants who had come to Hamburg from Russia and other parts of Eastern Europe to uh, seek passage to America. Albert Ballin proved to be extremely shrewd at this business. And in 1886, he was hired by the Hamburg America Line to become the head of the passenger division. And by 1899, he'd become head of this company, the Hamburg America Line, also known as Hopog. And those of you that drive past Newark, New Jersey, or any major port, you'll see the container saying Hopog Lloyd, that is his company. And Albert Ballin turned the Hamburg America line into the biggest and most profitable shipping company in the world. And his main source of revenue was immigrants from the Russian empire. Now, the question is, how do all these Russian immigrants who are trying to get out, escaping from persecution, pogroms, military conscription, how did they get out? Well, they had to cross the Polish-German border. And not too dissimilar from the uh, crisis at the border today, you had all these people who were trying to get across and uh, by legal and illegal means, Germany didn't want them. So what Albert Ballin and his competitor, the, the North German Lloyd line did, was that they set up a system of border control checkpoints. They told the German government, we'll take over the border 
We'll make sure that these people can get on trains, sealed trains. We'll make sure that they're fumigated, inspected for disease, and they'll be put on ships to uh, America. So that was the business arrangement. Uh, immigrants uh, either saved up for years for this trip, or they received uh, uh, grants from Jewish organizations in New York. I'm sorry, in the United States and in Europe. Highest, I uh, presume? Yes, Highest was very involved in this. And the Immigrant Aid Society, yes. Yes, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society was uh, helped uh, immigrants get tickets uh, to America. They also helped set up a kind of whole network of charities and aid organizations in New York when they arrived. And they helped people get jobs. They gave people loans for small businesses. And the person on the other end of the line or the other end of the other side of the ocean who was very involved in this was Jacob Schiff. Jacob Schiff was an immigrant from <coughs> Germany, uh, from the Frankfurt ghetto. He came over in the early 1860s. His father worked for the Rothschilds. Jacob Schiff became head partner of the investment banking firm Kuhn Loeb and Company, which was second only to the JP Morgan Investment Bank in power in the United States. They were the investment bankers of the Pennsylvania Railroad, to the Rockefellers, and to the Union Pacific. So that's- I'm gonna go Jacob back Schiff up just a little bit about him though. How did they get to that? Where, where did Jacob come in? Uh, and was he primarily responsible for that great success? Or did he did he piggyback somebody else's success? Uh, as a combination of his own hard work and marrying the right person. Jacob ah. Schiff married uh, Teresa Loeb, who was the daughter of the founding partner of Kuhn Loeb and Company, Solomon Loeb. The old-fashioned way. <laughs> yes, yes. And he eventually said, told his father-in-law in the 1870s, in order to make this firm grow to the next level, we need to invest in, become investment bankers to railroads. That's the way of the future. Solomon thought his son-in-law was crazy, but Jacob Schiff ended up making the firm a whole lot of money. So uh, back to him. So how did he get involved in it? What was the mo the motivation for him? Well, by the 1890s, Jacob Schiff was arguably the richest Jew in America, and he very much saw himself as the leader of the Jewish community. He had a very strong sense of tzedakah, of giving back, of charity, and it's estimated he gave away about half of his fortune to charity, heavily Jewish charities such as Montefiore Hospital, which took care of the of the indigent in New York City. He gave away a lot of money to the Henry Street Settlement House, which helped educate uh, impoverished immigrants on the Lower East Side. Uh, he was on the board of the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. And yeah, he saw his role as someone to make America the promised land for the Jewish people. And there's a strange conflict because a lot of German Jews of his class looked down on these Russian Jews. They felt they were uneducated, uncultured. They spoke an improper form of German they saw, known as Yiddish. But Jacob Schiff said, we need to educate these people and uplift these people. And he spent, he was someone who had no problem, even though he lived in a big townhouse at Fifth Avenue, he would walk 60 blocks every day to his office and he would never ride a carriage visiting these uh, the Henry Street Settlement House. He always felt he, it was the appropriate thing to do was to arrive on foot. Get out a few blocks in advance and, and, sh and make the right presentation, I would presume. Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> And the third part of this uh, trio, uh, Mr. J.P. Morgan, who was not Morgan Stern or anything even remotely like that. I've been asked many times, how did J.P. Morgan, who's kind of the uber Gentile, get involved in the immigrant business? Well, like any good businessman, he saw where the money was going. He did it with railroads in the in the United States. He was a fierce competitor of Jacob Schiff underwriting railroads. Uh, 
JP Morgan was also quite anti-Semitic. His son, JP Morgan Jr., was even worse. But he saw all these competing steamship lines, such as the Hamburg America line, uh, the North German Lord line out of Germany, the Cunard line and White Star line out of America, out of the, uh, the United Kingdom. And most they're making most of their money from the immigrant trade, from third class. And he says, you know what? What I want to do is buy up all these companies, consolidate them into one trust where the ships run on time around the clock and they're efficient and organized. So in 1901, along with the help of Philadelphia shipping magnate named Clement Griscom, he forms the International Mercantile Marine and tries to buy out every line on the Atlantic. His biggest prize is the White Star Line, which becomes infamous later, uh, a decade later. Uh, but he is unable to buy the two German lines, North German Lloyd and Hamburg America Line. This is one instance where J.P. Morgan fails and Albert Ballin successfully uses the German government and his own smarts to outwit J.P. Morgan and keep Hamburg America Line independent. And Albert Ballin knows Morgan's trust cannot work without my immigrant revenue. It cannot work. Morgan offers Albert Ballin a million dollars a year, supposedly. This to is 1900, so he's a serious money. This is $30 million a year. And Morgan almost never hired Jews. I don't think he ever did. But he tried to poach Albert Ballin. And Albert Ballin said, no, sorry, I am loyal to Germany. I am loyal to the Hamburg America line. And I cannot do that. Well, he had a forget relationship with uh, Wilhelm. Yes, Albert Ballin was a, in a very interesting position because he was a not a religious Jew, but he never converted, unlike many others who tried to rise in German society. He um, married a Gentile uh, and adopted a daughter, and he and Marianne raised Ermgard as a Lutheran. But he said, I could never convert out of memory for my dead father. He said, this is very much a part of my identity. But Wilhelm, Kaiser Wilhelm, admired Albert Ballin as someone who was spreading German greatness throughout the world. He admired these grand ocean liners he was building. And Albert Ballin sort of served as an informal advisor to the Kaiser on all things maritime. But Albert Ballin always sensed, he knew that when Kaiser Wilhelm II would go back to Berlin and hang out with his, his buddies at the foreign office, other Prussian aristocrats, he knew that most of them were very anti-Semitic. And Albert Ballin always had this feeling of no matter how high he rose in German society, he never was quite on the in crowd. He had a huge distaste for the German Foreign Service. He said the head of the Foreign Service in Berlin is not fit to work as an office boy at the Hamburg America lot. Well put. <laughs> Could agree. Uh, before I, I want to get back in, in a second and and talk about the trajectory and how the different ways in which they would get out of uh, out of Russia and ultimately get to America. But let's go back around 1881. I guess this really begins with the Kishnev pogrom. Uh, what was happening in Mother Russia at the time that made, that made life so unbearable for the two and a half million Jews who were living in, in the Palest settlement and in Russia? Well, in 1881, Tsar Alexander II was assassinated and he was a Tsar who was steadily moving the country towards constitutional monarchy. Uh, and had liberated the serfs in 1861, uh, two years before Abraham Lincoln ended slavery in the United States with the Emancipation Proclamation, at least in terms of law. Took mm -hmm. another two years for that with the war. But <clears throat> his son, Alexander III, who took over, said, see, this is what happens when you try to liberalize Russia. These Western evil liberal influences come in and they assassinate the, my father. They assassinate the czar. 
He blamed the Jews for this. He said, look what's happening in England. Look what's happening in France. France has become a republic for God's sake. Uh, he saw what was happening in Germany, where you had not exactly a constitutional monarchy, but Jews were given full citizen right, citizens' rights. In Austria-Hungary, Emperor Franz Joseph gave Jews full citizens' rights uh, and thus unleashed the golden period for Jews and uh, before World War I in Vienna. And Alexander II, Alexander III said, we cannot have that. We need to return to orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality. And he saw any non-orthodox ethnic Russian as the enemy within his empire. It wasn't just Jews. It was Muslims in Central, in Central Asia. Uh, it was Georgians, anyone who didn't fit the orthodox mold. So he embarked on a program known as Russification, but he specifically singled out the Jews saying, they tend to be anarchists. They don't believe, you know, they're Christ killers. And he basically gave anti-Semitism state blessing, saying, my cavalry, the Cossacks, can go up and rape, kill, uh, kill and murder Jews whenever they want. If citizens ever want to, go ahead and do it. You can go do it. If you're ever feeling crummy about your situation in the world, take it on the Jews. It's their fault. So the situation was already tough before Alexander II was assassinated, but then throw in military conscription which was basically a way of taking away 10-year-old Jewish boys from their parents, keeping them in the army for 20 years. And when they would come back, they were no longer Jewish uh, and didn't speak Yiddish anymore. And many of them died of disease and in the Tsar's many wars. So not, not a very pleasant situation. So so you're now you're sitting there in, uh, probably not in Kiev, somewhere in Belarus, and you want to get out. So uh, so what do you do? What what is your what is your what are the steps and uh, how do you get to to Bremerhaven or or Hamburg? Well, the first thing you have to do is make the decision to leave. And even if the situation is unbearable, you're like, well, my whole family's here. I've grown up in this area. My family, my family's buried here. But then when you have to make that decision of like of finding a better life, you sell everything you own. Most immigrants were poor. <clears throat> tradesmen, they made their money as butchers or as uh, furriers or as uh, uh, blacksmiths or the proverbial- Filler on the roof, milkman. they were milkmen. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And you had to sell everything you had to pay for a $25 ticket or the equivalent of maybe $1,000, $2,000 today. So that was a lot of money. And then you had to say goodbye to all your family and friends and you would get on a horse and cart if you're in one of the small shuttles and you take- that to the nearest train station, you get on, and then that would end up at the Polish-Russian border. And then you'd have to go through one of these border checkpoints that was run by the Hamburg-America line or by um, the North German Lloyd. And you'd have your ticket, and then you'd get on the train, and the train would be sealed. It would take you through Germany. You couldn't get off except for this one checkpoint called Ruhrleben outside of Berlin, where the immigrants would be inspected, their baggage would be fumigated, uh, the, the goal of the uh, German government and also the steamship lines was to not let anyone who had any diseases into the country. And by the interest of the steamship lines, they said, if we bring people to America that will be get rejected at Ellis Island, they will get sent back at steamship expense. So this is a whole system devised by Albert Ballin. Uh, a lot of the, there was a saying at the border control stations among Jews and other immigrants saying, May God save you from Balin and his bats. Uh, he was uh, he was frequently targeted by the German Jewish community as an exploiter of his own people. But frankly, even though it was a profitable enterprise, it was the most efficient way for people to get out. And then they would get on 
uh, they would arrive at the so-called immigrant village outside of Hamburg. And well, if you go back, I believe he constructed these villages, right? It's he Hamburg. did. Yes, this was this was constructed by the Hamburg America Line. It could house thousands of immigrants at a time. It had dormitories, a synagogue, a church. Uh, there was a brass band that played on Sundays. Uh, there was <coughs> uh, kosher food for those who wanted it. And it was also walled off. So it, it, the city fathers of Hamburg were very worried about these immigrants uh, going into the city center. And there was a lot of anti-Semitism in Hamburg, too. And and there was a whole guild of swindlers who uh, took advantage of these people. But then they would wait there for... <laughs> exactly. And they would yeah. wait there. Not There's some, a lot of similarities. History rhymes. And then they would uh, take a, 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 a ferry boat to Cuxhaven at the mouth of the Elbe River where there, these big ocean liners would be waiting for them. And the way these ocean liners worked at the turn of the century, the big ones uh, run by Hamburg America Line was that they would have maybe 501st class, 302nd, and one to 2,000 in steerage. That was the business model. They would get on and before 1905, steerage consisted of these big vast open berth dormitories so imagine traveling as a family in a the bottom of the ship with very little light or, or nat natural light or air the first time you'd ever seen electric lights you'd ever seen a flush toilet and you'd never been to sea before and then for the next five to ten days you're on the north atlantic on the bottom of one of these liners the ro rocking north atlantic it's yes. not a caribbean cruise it is not. And the steerage was either located at the very front or the very back. So if you're in the front, you got the motion of the ship rising up and down. If you're in the back, you got uh, two or four propellers uh, uh, whirring away. And when they come out of the water, they make a tremendous noise. So for a lot of these immigrants, this was not a pleasure cruise. This was absolutely terrifying. And they just could not wait to see the Statue of Liberty. And what? many of these big liners, when they arrived, they would lean to one side. Well, because before they, before they saw the Statue of Liberty, uh, as you write, prior to having a direct route, they would stop, I believe, in Liverpool, somewhere on the west west coast of England temporarily. Yes, that was known as indirect immigration. And Albert Ballin was involved in this business as a young man where smaller ships from Hamburg would sail to Liverpool and then British steamship lines would take them across. But Albert Ballin, by the 1890s, was able to build ocean lines big enough to do that route between Hamburg and New York direct. So this is where you're getting into, I guess, the early part of the uh, beginning of the 1900s. Uh, and then in 1904, 1905, we had a little activity called the Russo-Japanese War, uh, where, where, where your relatives uh, defeated the, uh, the Russians. Or maybe, you, or maybe your relatives defeated your relatives, if we want to get <laughs> completely goofy about this. But, yeah, it's uh, strange, strange how that happens. But uh... <laughs> like the, the Civil War. Um, and, and, and so talk about that, because this, this became another opportunity for Hamburg America, for Albert Bowen. Uh, so what did he do? How did he, uh, how did he profit from this, and how did he uh, get more Jews out? It was a very strange thing, because the Russo-Japanese War basically... Uh, when the conflict erupted in 1904-1905, everyone in Russia, Jew and non-Jew, was like, oh no, we're going to really get conscripted to the army. And the Tsar, Tsar Nicholas II, uh, Alexander III's son, who was just as anti-Semitic, uh, toughened down on drafting people. And you had this surge of people trying to get out, trying to get out of Russia. This was 
a bonanza for the German steamship lines. Uh, it allowed them to construct larger ships. And Albert Ballin did something very interesting where he sold the Russians several outdated ocean liners and also uh, worked with the Russian government to supply coal for their fleet that steamed from the Baltic all the way around the coast of Africa to the back to the to Tsushima Straits where they were to do battle with the Japanese fleet. I think Albert Ballin saw this, I don't think he was any great friend of the Russians, but I think he saw this as a wonderful business opportunity. I, he did take some flack for working with, with what Jacob Schiff called the great Satan of the Jewish people, the Tsar. But ultimately the, the Russian fleet was destroyed by Admiral Togo and Hamburg America came out way ahead, was able to rebuild its fleet. And on the other side, Jacob Schiff as head of Kuhn Loeb and Company, he went into overdrive to finance the Japanese war effort, uh, selling war bonds in the United States. Uh, America tended to side with the Japanese at this time. And he was so successful with his war bonds that he sent an issue over to his uh, son-in-law's banking house, uh, M.N. Vorberg and Company in Hamburg, which was the investment banker to the Hamburg America line. And Max Vorberg <laughs> sold out I think two issues of these war bonds, these Japanese war bonds. So it was, Jacob Schiff saw this as his duty to defeat the Tsar. And Jacob Schiff was hosted by the Japanese emperor and the imperial family after the war and thanks for his efforts to defeat the Russians. And the Russians were roundly defeated in this war. Theodore Roosevelt pretty much sided with the Japanese saying that the Russians are extremely stupid uh, and, at the Treaty of Portsmouth. And he got the Nobel and, Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize for it. And Theodore Roosevelt got the Nobel Peace Prize for ending that war. Yeah. Well, I'm saying the Japanese ended the war. They, they got rid of the Russians yeah. very, very <clears throat> dispatched them quite uh, quite quickly. Uh, the uh, I mean, uh, the large the, the anti-Semitism that we knew in the 20s really began to percolate prior to the First World War, talking people like Cabot Lodge, the uh, the elder, um, Prescott Hall. Uh, this whole sense of wanting to, it kind of echoes a lot of what we hear today, if you get back to the whole immigration, uh, the the fact that the, uh, didn't want to genetically uh, uh, destroy the, the American lineage, if you will, by this incursion of Italians and, and Jews and all these, you know, so a lot of racist philosophy uh, was beginning to, uh, to emerge for someone like Madison Grant, uh, which I guess began prior to the war to begin to slow down the activity, the uh, the arrival of more immigrants. It's important to point out uh, this crowd, the Immigration Restriction League, which started in the 1890s. And I think the big difference between the anti-immigration movement today versus in the 1890s was that today it's kind of a grassroots populist thing. But in the 1890s, it started as an elite movement in academia and in high society, like Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, the author Owen Wister, uh, academics such as Francis Amesa Walker, who is affiliated both with MIT and Yale. Uh, these people well, said- Well, that goes today, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah there, there, there are some, it's, it's interesting how it, 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 these, these, it's, it's, it, there's some parallels, but uh, these people said, uh, these Southern Italians, these uh, Jews, these people from Eastern Europe, they are, not they are beaten men from beaten races, as uh, Professor Walker said, and they will taint the American genetic stock. There was already scientific racism that was emerging out of France and Germany at this time, and it began spreading to the United States. 
And the argument that Cabot Lodge and these other people were making was that this will ruin the country. And this started off as a small movement, but they were very well funded. They had access to uh, premier publications and to academia. And by the 1910s, it had gone mainstream. It had gone absolutely mainstream. And in 1916, uh, in the midst of World War One, Madison Grant, who was another one of these uh, non-working lawyers who had too much time and too much money on his hands, uh, he came up with a book called The Passing of the Great Race, which said the Nordic race, which um, he said emerged from Germany and from Gr the British Isles, was the most advanced, followed by the so-called Alpines, then followed by the so-called Mediterraneans, meaning Italians and Jews. Sure. And he said, if we do not work hard enough and do not impose some sort of segregation, the uh, lower races, quote unquote, will outbreed the Nordics. And this book took the took the country and the world by storm. Adolf Hitler would later refer to it as his Bible. And that book is actually what really gave uh, the, the Immigration Restriction League traction, that plus World War One, where there was this fear of all these people coming to America after the war as refugees. So what happens when the war breaks out in 1914? Is it like an, an immediate cessation of immigration or did it take a while for it to settle in? It's definitely cut off. Albert Ballin uh, had worked for years before July 1914 to stop a war between Germany and Great Britain. He says, our countries have too much in common. We have trading relationships. Uh, the royal families are, inter are, are related. And sure america so, sorry he said sure great britain and germany can do have a rivalry over the size of their ocean liners but not over war uh when the war did break out he supposedly yelled in desperation my life's work is ruined almost immediately great britain laid mines through the uh, north sea that prevented german ships from leaving blockading germany uh many of hamburg america line's biggest ships were stuck in u.s ports and unable to leave uh, the rest were stuck in Hamburg, and these German shipping companies went uh, went effectively bankrupt, and there were thousands of people trying to get out. There were Jews who were stranded at the immigration village who were basically taken by the German government and put to work in forced labor, and most and, and Jews who were sort of caught in the maw of fighting between Austria-Hungary, Germany, and Russia on the Eastern Front there were pogroms en masse. And it was deeply distressing to Jacob Schiff, who raised funds for the Joint Distribution Committee in New York to send to these refugees. But this effectively ended uh, mass immigration. And then after the war, there was a renewed push for people getting out. But then in 19, the early 1920s, the US Congress passed a series of laws effectively barring people of Southern and Eastern European ancestry from the country. And the Chinese Exclusion Act is in that period or prior to this? Chinese Exclusion Act was in the early 1880s. Okay. So that came before. But these exclusion acts that basically prevented people from Eastern and Southern Europe and uh, Asians from entering the country were not repealed until 1965. And so, so, let's, so what happened to these three guys at this point? So, I mean, I guess Morgan continued to make his millions. Uh, Holland America, well, did, did they go kaput? Were they, were they bankrupt at this point? Uh, J.P. Morgan's International Mercantile Marine was his one big business failure mm -hmm. because he did not have the Hamburg America Line or the North German Lloyd. Uh, 
his company, uh, the White Star Line, it was a British flagged company, but uh, wholly American owned, in response to Albert Ballin's superliners, built three large luxury liners, the Olympic of 1911, the Titanic of 1912, and the Britannic of 1914. And two of those three ships sank, one after hitting an iceberg uh, in 1912, the other sank after hitting a mine in 1916. And the Titanic disaster was a catastrophe for JP Morgan. Out of the 2,200 on board, 1,500 died. More first-class men survived than third-class children. There are many prominent Jews in first class who perished, including Benjamin Guggenheim and Isidore and Ida Strauss, who famously did not part from each other. They became martyrs for the Jewish community. And also there were many uh, Jews who perished in steerage. So this made, this was a bad look for the White Star Line. Morgan died in 1913. Uh, worth around $80 million, which was a huge sum of money, uh, a mammoth fortune. But the Titanic disaster was a stain on his reputation. As the Wall Street Journal said, the ocean is too big for the old man. <laughs> and uh, apparently John D. Rockefeller Sr. saw Morgan's obituary. And by then he had become America's first billionaire and said, all this, and he wasn't even a rich man. <laughs> which is kind of silly. Uh, Albert Ballin died in 1918, just before the armistice. And uh, his shipping line was in ruins. And he uh, his legacy was erased by the Nazis in, 19, in the 1930s. Uh, Hamburg America Line fired all of its Jewish employees in 1933. And it wasn't until the 1960s that the city of Hamburg and Germany as a whole began recognizing his contributions for arguably bringing more people to America than any other single person. Jacob Schiff died in 1920. Uh, he had a very painful sort of cultural divorce. Like a lot of German Jews, he felt very loyal to Germany. He felt Russia was the great Satan. Germany was the center of high culture. And in 1914, when the war broke out, he said, I have a very hard time denouncing Germany, my mother, my mother country. A lot of these German Jews in America felt culturally German. They practiced Judaism, but they spoke German at home. They had German nannies. They sent their kids to German-speaking schools. And Jacob Schiff had to culturally divorce himself from Germany. In 1915, when the Lusitania was sunk uh, and killing 1,200 people, the Kinard Line's uh, flagship, uh, he had to go to, he went to the office of J.P. Morgan Jr., and apologized for his the native the actions of his native country and J.P. Morgan Jr. told him to get the heck out of his office and never mm -hmm. show his face again. Probably, probably um, used other language when he said it. I would he, imagine he did not very nice language. Uh, but Jacob Schiff, uh, he realized by 1917, 1918 that maybe America was not as rosy as he thought it was. He saw rising anti-Semitism, and when America declared war on Germany and uh, its allies. Uh, Anti-Semitism actually went through the roof because in the public's mind, they associated with Jews with, with Germany. Uh, the ambassador to from Britain to America described the greatest enemy to England as the phalanx of German Jew bankers. Name thinking of people like Jacob Schiff. Jacob Schiff died in 1920. And when he died, his funeral was at Temple Emmanuel. He had given away tens of millions of dollars to charity. And inside the synagogue, you had some of the richest and most powerful people in America, Jew and Gentile, celebrating his legacy. The former mayor of New York said there was no eulogy for Jacob Schiff. He needs none. But outside are thousands and thousands of Jews from the Lower East Side and from Brownsville 
who were impoverished who'd come up and stood outside in the rain to pay their last respects to someone they saw as their Moses. Well, in, in I guess in conclusion, two and a half million Jews. I mean, it would, somehow this program has all become about Jews. But what are you going to do? We are we are kind of two Jews here talking about our our cultural history. There were seven and a half million non-Jews that came in, uh, Italians, Don Corleone, and others, perhaps of, of more uh, notable contribution. Uh, how do we look at the uh, somewhat epical moment uh, when so many people came to America uh, and the, the great contributions without naming people that were made? And then where are we today when we're trying to so let's go back to the positive And what are we trying to stave off, trying to keep away people who, who still see America as this, this golden beam, this, this light? Where, where are they going to go? I mean, I'm living in Paris. They're not going to come here. I think uh, one thing to sort of keep in mind, just from perspective, an estimated 18 million people crossed the Atlantic Ocean between the 1880s and the 1914, uh, not just Jews, but Italians, Poles, uh, Austrians, Nikola Tesla, Irish, yeah, yeah. you name it, Serbians, people seeking a better life and better opportunity. And for that first generation, it was extremely hard. A lot of people didn't make it. It was an extremely torturous. They worked at the worst jobs and sweatshops and uh, being underpaid in terrible conditions. And I remember the famous uh, Irish-American writer, Peter Hamill, who said- uh, we, um, we know him as Pete. Yeah. Pete, Pete Hamill said, uh, said of this, he said, my father came to America from Belfast, Ireland. He worked in these rough, tough industrial jobs. We lived in New York and he was not a guy you'd messed with. But he said at night, I remember- waking up and hearing my father sobbing, sobbing in the next room. And he said, and this is something that's true of immigrants, no matter whatever their background. He said, I saw my father and I feel I, from that time on as a second generation, I had to honor that debt. I had to honor that debt. And I think we have to remember that there are people coming here to this country who want a better life, for their children. And often it's happened on both sides of my family. That first generation was awful. They experienced racism. They experienced deep, deep poverty, which traumatizes across generations. I still see it. People still see that. And I think we just have to remember that there are people who want to better their families and want a better life for their children. So and that's the driving force. I'm so happy you mentioned Pete Hamill because Pete later in his life became a friend and uh, stayed in touch quite regularly by phone and was here in Paris and I saw him in New York. And you mentioned his father. <clears throat> his father had a, his leg amputated uh, as a result of not getting to the hospital in time when he was playing uh, soccer in, in Brooklyn with friends. And a black man that worked in the factory across the street that was five floors up would come every day and carry him on his back up to his job and take him down again. And Pete's mother, an Irish-American immigrant woman, had said to him, Pete, I never want to see you looking down at someone unless you're sending a hand down to help them up. And mm -hmm. that kind of uh, that kind of value system was is quite uh, quite amazing. And that uh, uh, you know, sadly, that's what we we were. I don't know if we're ever going to be able to get back to that. We're living in really ugly times. Um, but I, I want to thank you for the book. Uh, I mean, I learned a lot, as I said at the, at the outset. I, I imagine these guys were just, uh, you know, walking along. 
So now it's filled in, and I'm, I'm certain that my listeners will be interested in, in reading this as well. Uh, once again, the book is The Last Shifts from Hamburg, Business, Rivalry, and the Race to Save Russia's Jews on the Eve of World War II, World War I. And my guest has been Stephen Ujifuza. Stephen, thank you. Thanks for joining us, and for all things Parisian, visit my website, paris-expat.com. That's paris-expat.com, and subscribe to my six free weekly newsletters. Until next time, I'm Terence Kalenter, your American friend in Paris.